following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So one of the fun parts of my personality is um, I remember a lot of very useless information. Um, like information you're never going to need in life. For example, I know all of the steps to go through to build a snow anchor. A snow anchor, like if you're going to repel off of a snowy cliff, I know how to take some ropes and just out of the snow be able to secure that rope so you can repel off the cliff. And that's great, except it's completely useless for me for two reasons. One, I've never been rock climbing. And two, I'm afraid of heights. So I will never jump off a perfectly good snowy cliff, even though I know how to make a snow anchor. And maybe here's another one. Um, I know all of the steps to go through to assess an elephant charge and to know how to evade a charging elephant, which that's helpful. Like if you think, well, is it a real charge or not, or is ears out or back, or do you go behind a tree or lay in a ditch? Like I know all of the steps to take. I've never been in a situation where an elephant could charge me. But just in case I was, I know all the steps. Now, here's the funny thing. I know how to do that, but I often forget how to get home. Like, I drive home every single day, and sometimes when I'm driving with my family, uh, I'll be driving on 75, and my wife will be like, hey, this, isn't this our exit? Don't we want to get off here? And I have to swerve across several lanes of traffic because I'm just not paying attention. I'm just, like, I'm on autopilot. I'm not paying attention, and I'm just going through things that I'm used to, and I just don't pay attention. I think that happens often with us. We go on autopilot, and we miss the little detail of what comes next, or we miss the little detail of whatever step we need to take. And I think that happens, interestingly enough, when we get to the Christmas story. Usually, this time of year, we all talk about the Christmas story, and you're so familiar with the Christmas story, and you're used to Mary and Joseph, this little couple that's engaged, and all of a sudden, she's pregnant, but it's not his, and angels tell him that it's God, and, and that you know Jesus is going to be born, and then they, uh, there's a census, and they go off to Bethlehem, and there's no room in the inn, so they have to stay in the stable or in a manger. And if you walk around your neighborhood, you probably even see that displayed on people's lawns with a little nativity set. And who else is there? Well, there are some shepherds who are there, and they tell you about they were out in the field, and there are all these angels telling them to follow the star, and this baby's born, and they go, and they find Jesus in the manger, and they worship him, and Mary and Joseph are all happy. And then if your neighbor has the deluxe version, they also have three other people there. Right? They have these wise men, these magi who are also there. Uh, and we were so used to this story. Yeah, the wise men show up and they worship Jesus. We're so used to it that we usually stop right there. We stop right there and we say, okay, that's the conclusion of the story. That was so fun. Let's move on to later on. But there's something that happens next that's really interesting and really impactful. And I want to unpack that with this. Because when you look at this Christmas story and you stop right there at those wise men or those magi, you miss all of this other stuff that happens. So we're going to take a look, a look at what happens next. That's going to be, in, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Matthew 2. So a Bible app or a Bible, you can look at that up, Matthew 2. Um, but just to get us understanding what's happening, let's kind of get in the mind frame of Joseph and Mary for a second, right? They're this young, impoverished couple that have gone to Bethlehem. They've gone to this foreign place because there's this census, and they're there, and this is where Joseph's family is from, and uh, they're there, and all of this stuff is happening with these shepherds coming in. And actually, it wasn't the same location. It was maybe as much as a year later. They're in a house in Bethlehem, and these magi come. Well, who are these magi? They're like king-like men, 
right? So they're wise philosophers and kingly riches, and they have entourage, and they come in, and they find, first they come to Herod, who's the king of this area, and they tell us, Herod, um, tell us, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And Herod's thinking, oh, great, I'm the king. What do you mean somebody else has been born? So Herod's a little bit worried. He tells these wise men, he tells them, okay, well, go and find him and worship him. And when you do, come back and tell me where he is because I want to come and worship him too. So then they come along and there are Mary and Joseph in this little house. And these wise men show up with their entourage and they give these lavish gifts. Now remember, this young couple doesn't have a lot of money. They're kind of impoverished and they're in Bethlehem but they're visited by these king-like features. And these men come and they give them these lavish gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, which these are gifts fit for a king. And they're giving them to this little baby that they have with them. And this is really incredible. I'm sure if you picture yourself being in Moses and um, Joseph or Mary's shoes, you can imagine laying down at night and talking to each other like, wow, what are we going to do with these gifts? Like, this is incredible. Like this is, we've got to write about, this is like the high of our life so far. We've had some really incredible things. The shepherds was really awesome. But the, the shepherds were like the low totem pole of society. Now we've got these magi, these wise men who come. Wow, like, can you believe that's what's going on? Like, Mary, what are we going to do about this? This is awesome. I can't wait to see what God does tomorrow, right? So let's take a look now in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. This is the Magi, these wise men, just leave that day. And this happens that night. So take a look with me. I'll read it for you. It'll also be up on the screens. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says this. Now when they had departed, they is when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So you just had one of the best days of your life. And that night when you go to sleep, an angel comes to you and says, run for your life. Run. Run. Go to Egypt. Go far away. Herod, the, the person in charge, the ruler, the king, he wants to kill Jesus. He wants to destroy him. You need to run right away. So they're going to bed happy and excited about what God is doing through these wise men. And in the middle of the night, an angel tells them they've got to run. That's got to be crazy. It's like they're on the highest point of their life, and instantly they're afraid for their life. So they go from this tremendous high to this low, all in the same 12-hour period. And I can't imagine for Joseph or for Mary what that was like to have that conversation in the middle of the night. No, the angel says, we need to go like right away. We need to go to Egypt I'm really bad with geography, so I had to look this up, but where they were in Bethlehem to the border of Egypt is about 90 miles at that point, 90 miles. And they're not traveling by caravan. They don't have Uber. They're not in a car. They're on foot. Maybe they have a, a donkey to bring some of their stuff on, maybe for Mary to ride on, but they have to travel by foot. So it would have taken several days for them to go from Bethlehem where they are all the way down to Egypt. But they have to pack up in the middle of the night and go. Let's look at what happens in verse 14. It says this. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So that night, they pack up whatever they can 
and they get out of town. That night, these wise men just left, and they're packing up and leaving town before the next dawn. Like, they're out of town. I can't imagine the craziness of that. You know, how would they finance the trip? Could they bring all of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh with them? How would they bring Jesus along with them? Like, there's got to be a part of them that feels like, God, what is happening? This is your child. Like, this is the one that you just had wise men come and worship, and now you're telling us to run for our life? God, have you forgotten about us? Like, why? I thought this was supposed to be a good thing. Like, this is a king. Like, we're supposed to be, you know, happy about this, but now we're running for our life. Well, look what happens next in verse 15 right there. It says this. It said, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, I really hope for Joseph, Joseph and Mary's sake that they were aware of what was going on. But Matthew gives us some insight. Yes, he's picking up this little family and they're running to Egypt for their life, but God is up to something. This isn't like, whoops, God forgot and something surprised him. God is up to something in Joseph and Mary's life and he's having them go to Egypt for a reason. And it's not just because he forgot about it or you just have to get out of town for a little while. He's doing something because he's fulfilling prophecy. I wonder if on that several-day journey to Egypt, they remembered that the prophet said, out of Egypt, I'll call myself. I wonder if this is it. I wonder if this is why God is bringing us there. But God was up to something. And let me tell you what happened next. Herod, who's king over this area, is worried about losing control. He heard from these wise men that there was a new king born, and he told the wise men to come back and tell me where he is because I want to go worship him as well. He wants to go get rid of this threat to his kingdom. And the wise men don't. It says they were warned in a dream. They go back another way home. They don't go back. They kind of deceive Herod, and they just don't. They disobey him and go another way. So then Herod is fearful for his kingdom and for his own control. So he does something that's probably one of the most heinous acts in history. It's just... There's no way to describe it other than saying it's just pure evil. He takes his soldiers and he goes to this rural town of Bethlehem and he decides to eliminate an entire generation of baby boys. He says, get rid of all of them. He kills all of the baby boys in Bethlehem, thinking that he's going to wipe out this threat to his throne. He's going to wipe out the threat because he needs to stay in power. And he does this horrible, evil act in Bethlehem. And if nothing else, it just shows us the kind of evil we so desperately need to be delivered from and protected from. Because it's crazy that Herod would go and do this for his own rule and his own authority. Then Herod lives three years. That's it, just three years. He wipes out an entire generation in town and only lives three years later. And he dies. And he dies. And I can't imagine what it was like in Bethlehem at the time. It probably was crazy. But three years later, Herod dies. And then an angel comes back to Joseph and Mary in Egypt. Skip down to verse 19. Skip down to verse 19. This is what happens. It says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, I can't imagine the joy and the excitement that Joseph and Mary must have felt at that point. We get to go back. Moving to Egypt for them was moving away from family. It was moving away from 
Um, other people who practiced the same religion, they didn't have a temple they could go to in Egypt to practice, so they were in exile in their own faith. They didn't have the support system that they had to take care of their family, so Joseph probably had to learn a new trade. He probably had to find a new way to provide for his family, all the while not, not knowing how long they were going to be there in Israel. So they had to completely transplant their home, and three years later, an angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, you can go, rise, take Take Mary and Jesus and go back to Israel for the ones who sought his life are dead. You can go back and be safe now. And there's all this excitement in their home and probably some anticipation of seeing old friends and being able to go back to the temple and worship again like we're used to and being around people that have similar values and similar culture than us. So they get to go back to Egypt. And so this is really exciting anticipation they get to have. And I know it's thrilling for them. And, I, and a lot of times we'll read through that story and we just kind of go on autopilot and read through that story and we're like, okay, yeah, that's what happens next. It's kind of like when you're, when you're driving home and you get home and you don't remember the trip. You ever been there? You get home and you don't remember driving home uh, because you just went on autopilot and you just went through the whole thing and now you're home. Well, I think that happens to us often. Our mind just fills in the blanks. And it fills in the next steps. And you get to the end of the story without realizing some important things along the way. That happened to me when I was a kid. It's one really memorable time. I grew up at a, a big church, and it was a lot of fun. My whole family was there. My grandpa was a deacon, and my dad was a deacon. And they'd always kind of stand at the same door after the service. And when I was a little kid, I'd be over in the kids' ministry. And my, maybe my mom would come get me, or some family would come get me right after the service. And I'd run into the foyer, and there were all these grown-ups. Now, as a child, I was painfully shy like painfully, painfully shy. Like my grandma would talk to me and I'd turn red and run away. Like I was very, very shy. So uh, here I am coming back into this church and are all these grown-ups, you know, maybe saying hi to me or something really threatening like that. And I'm running through and there's my dad. I see my dad in the floor and I run up and I would do this thing where I'd run and just grab his leg and I'd bury my head up against his leg just thinking I could be invisible. So this time I run in and I'm just on autopilot. I grab his leg and I bury my face in his leg and then it happened. Daniel, the voice came from over there, not from the person whose leg I'm holding. And my dad was standing over there. I look up, and I'm holding some stranger's leg. I, I think I passed out. I'm not exactly sure what happened. My memory's blank from there. But I was just on autopilot, and I ran in, and I grabbed at the wrong leg. I missed that little detail because my mind was just on autopilot and wanted to finish where I was running to. And I think that happens, but I think something else really interesting happens with our, with our mind. We have this incredible sense of recall. Have you ever smelled a smell and it brings you right back to a place and you can picture being there? You can even finish all of the other smells that were there. Or maybe with music, you know, you can hear, there's even that game show, name that tune. You hear a little bit of the song and your mind can play the rest of the song. Or if somebody were to ask you, hey, what are the lyrics to that song? And you can't think of the lyrics at all, but then they say one short phrase from the song, and you can finish every word in that song. Our minds have this incredible sense of recall. And I think that's part of God's design. Because there's this thing that he does in Scripture. Here's how the Bible works. The Bible is written over several thousand years. And here's what's key to the Bible, that um, in all of that, there's one central character. The entire Bible, beginning to end, is all about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. And we know that because not only is there a children's book that says it this way, every story whispers his name, which is a great way to describe it, but also you see Jesus himself 
after he had died and, re- and resurrected, he's walking with these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he's, it says he starts at the beginning of the scripture, and he explains all of these things and how they were directed to him. And the disciples said, did our hearts not burn within us while we heard these things? They're so aware of how all of these things, they're true about Jesus. They're not just stories that happen in history, but they're true about Jesus. And I think that's true. And as you hear this story or this song, it should bring to mind another one. Now, let me maybe, let me paraphrase the Christmas story like this. There's a king, and the king is worried about losing control. So he decides to eliminate a generation of babies. But there's a baby who's saved out of that. And that baby is treated like a king. And then one day, something happens. And he has to run for his life and go just outside that king's reach. And then later, when that king dies, God calls that person back to his people to be a deliverer. That's the story of Moses. 1,500 years before Jesus, that's the story of Moses. And see, Matthew right here, he's writing to the first century Jewish audience. He's writing to people who are intimately familiar with the story of Moses because Moses was one of the primary figures in their history. They knew Moses as the deliverer. They knew all these amazing things about Moses. So let me tell you a little bit of the story of Moses. In Exodus 1, right in the very beginning of Exodus, it's the second book in the Bible, you're introduced to this pharaoh. He's the new pharaoh, and he comes into power in Egypt, and he sees this whole nation of Israel that are living among his people, and he realizes, this is a strong nation. They could side with my enemy and overthrow me. So Pharaoh's worried about losing control. So what does he do? He decides to oppress the people. He comes up with this plan with these midwives to tell them, whenever a Hebrew boy or Israelite boy is born, I want you to kill him. And the midwives disobey him. They make up reasons why they can't. So then Pharaoh does this. He takes his soldiers and he goes through Israel and he kills all the baby boys, trying to wipe out this generation. And then Moses is spared. Moses grows up, he actually grows up in the king's home, treated like a king himself, and then one day something changes, and Moses has to flee for his life and go just beyond the Pharaoh's reach. And when he goes to a new place, he has to set up a new way to earn a living. He has to transition from temporary to more permanent lifestyle there. He has to be apart from his people and his culture and his peers, and he has to go to a new foreign land, kind of an exile. And then one day that Pharaoh dies, And God comes to him and calls him back home. I want you to hear how God does that. In Exodus 4.19, I'm going to read it. Don't worry. It'll be up on the screens. Don't turn there. But in Exodus 4.19, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. It's the same thing that God says to Joseph. Go back. All the ones who sought your life are dead. The story of Moses parallels the beginning story of Jesus so beautifully. And what Matthew is doing is he's triggering that response in Israel. He's saying, hey, this is true. This is the history of what happened. But you should realize this is better than Moses. Jesus is just like Moses. He went through the same pattern as Moses, and he's better than, he's greater than Moses. And I think God writes this story through history so you know Jesus is your deliverer. Moses was the deliverer for the nation of Israel, but Jesus is your deliverer. He has come to deliver you. Well, fast forward 
How does the story of Moses end? How does Moses get the people out of slavery? Well, there are all these things he goes through with Pharaoh trying to get them out. But the final thing, what actually is the final thing that, that frees the people? Well, Moses gathers all of Israel together, and this is what he says. Death is coming. Death is coming, but I want you to find a lamb. And I want you to take this lamb in your home, and I want you to sacrifice the lamb for your family. And then I want you to take the blood of the lamb, and I want you to paint it on the doorpost of your home. And as you paint it on the doorpost of the home, when death comes tonight, it will pass over your home, and the firstborn of Egypt will die. And be ready, because when that happens, we will be freed to leave slavery, and we will go march toward the promised land. And that night, that's what happens. Families in Israel take a lamb, and they sacrifice the lamb. They paint their homes to be marked by the blood of that lamb, and death passes over them, and they're freed from that slavery and pursue going to the promised land. Well, what happens at the end of Jesus' story? As the nation of Israel is preparing to celebrate Passover, remembering what happened with Moses in Egypt, they're celebrating Passover, and that same time, Jesus becomes our Passover lamb. He becomes the sinless lamb that is sacrificed. And it's his blood that if, it's, if it marks your home, death passes over and you are freed from bondage and you are set on a course to the promised land. Like Jesus does a beautiful job of fulfilling and being greater than what God started with Moses. It's this incredible thing. It's so amazing to hear how this song just repeats itself through history so that God can show you, you have a deliverer in Jesus. And he's greater than Moses. He didn't just tell you you needed a lamb. Jesus himself became the lamb for you. And he didn't just set you out in the wilderness to start walking toward a promised land. Jesus guarantees you the promised land of heaven if you put your faith in him and you are covered by his blood. It's this incredible thing that God does. And that should fill us with so much hope and anticipation for what's God, what God is doing because we see that God is up to something. He's not just forgotten us and tucked us away. It's not like he's just set something in motion, he's walked away, but he is up to something in our lives. So as you look at 2018, as you kind of turn the page in your calendar to a whole new year, you can see that God is up to something. Whatever comes this year, you can be confident and have hope. Maybe like for Joseph and Mary's, they're running to Egypt. You feel like I'm running for my life. I'm so uncertain of what's happening. Maybe in your business, things aren't looking so great for this next year. Maybe the year you have to close down a business. Or maybe you're on the rocks at your job and you're just not sure what's going to happen this year. But God hasn't forgotten you. He's up to something. He's up to fulfilling a part of his story in your life. And maybe for you, you can go through this year in your business with confidence and hope, knowing that ultimately... Jesus has delivered you and has guaranteed your entrance to the promised land. Or maybe in your relationships and your family, things have been kind of rocky this holiday season or things have been unsure. Maybe you've suffered great loss in 2017. You're not sure what 2018 is going to look like. Or, or maybe you're on the other end, you're looking forward to hope and excitement when there's a, a new marriage or new family members added or a baby in 2018. You're just so excited. Whether it's that tremendous high of excitement or the low of despair, you know God is up to something. God is up to something. And he's working in your life. And he has guaranteed the day of your deliverance already. It's secure. Jesus finished it. And now you can walk through the year 
knowing that God is at work in your life. Because he doesn't promise that it's all going to be kings and worship. There are going to be other flights to Egypt. There are going to be other times when you have to go through difficult times. But God is up to something in your life. He's not just leaving you alone. And when you put your faith in Jesus, Christian, as you've put your faith in Jesus, he has guaranteed your entrance into the promised land. He's already finished it and secured it. And it's done. And maybe you're here and you haven't done that. Maybe you're here and you're like, this sounds really interesting, or how do I get what Jesus did to count for me? Like, do I need to go sacrifice lamb and put blood on my door? Like, what do I need to do? Well, here's the amazing thing. Jesus offers that sacrifice to you as a gift. He offers it freely as a gift. And what he says is, if you put your faith in me, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. That sacrifice will count for you. You will be freed, you will be delivered, and you are on a course to the promised land. That's what Jesus offers you. And for some of you today, that's what you need to do. Maybe God's tugging on your heart and you're deciding today, this is what I need to do. I want God to deliver me. And here's how that works. It's just, it's simple. It's through letting him know that in prayer. So this is what I like to do. I'd like us all to pray. So with every head bowed and eyes closed, if that is you this morning, if you are wanting to be delivered by God, if you're wanting to start that relationship with God, I'm going to pray a simple prayer, and I want you, I'm going to pray it out loud, but I want you to repeat it quietly in your heart to God. And it goes like this, Jesus, I need to be delivered. I want your sacrifice to count for my life. So Jesus, please deliver me from where I am in life. Please cover me and let death pass over me. And let me go to the promised land with you in heaven. And Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have done that. Thank you that you guaranteed my deliverance already and that you have promised that I will be in the promised land in heaven. God, I thank you for that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.